First John and chapter three. First John and chapter three. We'll read the last paragraph in First John chapter three, although our attention this morning is only in the last verse of the chapter. First John and chapter three. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Well, brethren, we come again to our ongoing series of messages in First John on the theme of assurance of salvation. And I have said many times before the importance of this subject is that if you are convinced that God has forgiven you of your sins, that God has saved you from sin, that you are on your way to heaven, it gives you the energy and ability to tell other people about God's way of salvation, to encourage them to also come to Jesus. And it also prepares you for death, because you know that when I die, I will be with God. Where you are going around, not sure whether you are truly converted or not, and taking chance about it, one thing is sure, you will not be someone who is energetically sharing salvation with others, and also, especially when the time comes, for you to be ushered out of this world, there will be a lot of trouble, a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration, and consequently, you will not put up a good witness for Christ in your last day. We have been seeing in this particular chapter at least two major ways in which we know we are converted. One is that we live a life of righteousness, and that's come out from verse 4 to verse 10. And the second is that we live a life of love for others. And that has come out from verse 11, especially up to verse 18. In this last paragraph, uh, the, uh, the Apostle John is bringing these two things together. And is basically saying it, these two elements help us to reassure our hearts 
when we have done anything against God that seems to steal away from us this sense of assurance. We, we reassure our hearts this way. We, we speak about this ongoing commitment to the righteousness and holy living and also this ongoing commitment towards the welfare of fellow believers. Um, John, in the passage that we looked at uh, last week, uh, went on to show us these two parts of disobedience, these two parts of God's command. And it is in verse 23. And this is his commandment. The first is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And the second is that we love one another just as he commanded us. And we noted that this helps us to avoid thinking that salvation is by works. Because the first part of God's commandment is to believe in his son. It is to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he might save us completely based upon what he has done in his life and in his death. That's the first position of obedience. And then the second is the life of love that follows after that. Today, as we come to the end of chapter 3, we are seeing the, the hidden source of this obedience. The hidden source of this obedience. Now, John puts it this way in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. John is really continuing. The, the chapters and verses were added later on. But he's clearly wanting to go and begin dealing with this whole issue of the spirit, the spirit, the spirit. And you can't miss it because when he begins chapter 4, the first thing he says is, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And on and on he goes. So clearly, John is about to, to go into another phase. And it is this phase of hearing what people are saying and sensing something in you that is saying, yes, yes, I like that. I, I, I think that is true. And he is saying, the fact that you might be feeling like that does not necessarily mean it is the Spirit of God. You need to, to test Whatever it is you are hearing, whatever response you are getting from within you, you need to put it to a doctrinal test. 
And that's where he will be heading. But we won't go that far. All we will do today is deal with this inner response. This inner response that we find in ourselves. And to begin with, John is saying that this obedience we are speaking about is an obedience that must come from within if it is an obedience which is truly Christian obedience. Now, why is that important? It's because, you see, it is possible for you and someone else to do exactly the same thing, but from two extremely different motives. I'll give an obvious example, but it will be an example which is in the exact opposite position. And it is this. You and a friend might be walking by the road and next to you is a pool of dirty water and then suddenly your friend pushes you and you fall into that water. Now the normal reaction obviously when you get out of that water and your nice suit or dress is all drenched in in dirty murky water is to be angry with him because you are assuming that the motive for which he has done that is a wrong motive, a malicious motive. He, he just wanted to harm you. That's the way in which you will initially respond. However, as you come out of that water and you're obviously about to, to pull him into that same water, he suddenly shows you behind you that there is a knife that is in that tree, stuck in that tree. And then you inquire from him where this knife is, and he shows in front of you it is your number one enemy. So suddenly you realize he was saving you from death. And consequently, after that, obviously, you hug him, kiss him on every side, and so on. Okay, so it was still the same push, but clearly the motive is different. And it is like that. Individuals can come to church, for instance, as you have come here. Some of you have come with noble motives. You've come because you've come to, to render to God worship. He's blessed you, he's looked after you, he's he's strengthened you, he's filled you with joy, and you have come to, to adore him, to thank him, to worship him. But it's wrong to conclude that everyone who comes to church comes for the same reason. Some of you perhaps have come simply because, you know, your parents said, if you don't go to church, we won't give you pocket allowance. So, just to get out money out of your parents, you, you come. Or maybe there's a, a girl you are chasing in this church. Yeah, that's also a possibility. And so you come to church and look like a holy angel as you are sitting there. So we can come with different reasons. God sees the reasons. God searches our hearts. God knows what is happening there. And so it is important as we are talking about obeying his commandments, that we are asking ourselves the question, why am I doing so? Why am I doing so? Where is the inspiration coming from for me to do what I am doing? Christianity is a heart issue. 
It's a heart issue. Jesus changes hearts. And one of the ways in which you know that I've become a Christian is primarily at this same point, that you now have a different motive, a God-centered motive, a God-honoring motive for doing the things that God wants you to do. Now, for non-Christians, that's impossible. It's completely impossible. I've been there. I was once unconverted. So I know what I'm talking about. To have a God-honoring motive for doing what God wants you to do is not natural. God must do this in our lives. But what I want us to notice here, first of all, is how... John, again and again, comes back to this issue of obeying God's commandments. Obeying God's commandments. I mean, just in these few verses, that issue of commandments has come up so many times. Look again with me at verse 22 to verse 24. Verse 22 to verse 24. And whatever we ask, We receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in in us. It's his commandments, his commandments, his commandments over and over and over again. That friend should tell us one thing. That there is no true Christianity if we have not been changed to the point where we are passionate about obeying God. About obeying God. If that change hasn't yet happened in our lives, we are not yet Christians. Now, friends, this is crucial. I don't know how much I can convince you about this. But over and over again, you meet individuals who claim to be Christians, and yet they are living in sin. And when you confront them, yes, they will admit that yes, you've caught them out, this is wrong, and then you say, well, then you know what to do. Go do it. A day or two later, they call you, or they send you a text message or something, and they say, no, I'm still continuing to do that which I was determined to do. Friends, that's not Christianity. It's not. Jesus changes hearts. Let's be clear about that. Jesus changes hearts. And one major way you realize this is a moral transformation. You become an individual who wants to obey God. His word in your life is final, even if it means dying for it in the process. Now, that's not suggesting that when you become a Christian, you become sinless. It's not about sinless perfection. It's about a disposition towards obedience. 
disposition towards obedience. I gave a few weeks ago the example of a child in a home. And that should, should help us to, to understand this whole aspect of obeying his commands, obeying his commands. Because any parent will tell you which child is an obedient child. They'll tell you that this child is really obedient. Now, if you ask that same parent, has this child ever done anything wrong against you? They immediately say, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. But, you can't miss the fact that this child is committed. There is a general disposition towards obedience. You can't miss it. Submission to our authority, our rule. You can't miss it. Yet every so often, the child shows the weaknesses. The child shows the failures. The child shows he or she is weak. You see, the problem with us is the exact opposite. We, we want to find assurance in the fact that we, we, we do good works. When at the same time, we are actually living in sin. We are living a sinful life on the other side. And that's what passages like this ought to cure. Because what they do is they show us that obedience to God's commandments keep his commandments is not an optional extra. It's not either or. It's proof that he has saved us. An important proof. So here's my appeal to you. Stop calling yourself a Christian if you are still living in sin. And it doesn't matter whether it's secret sin. Stop calling yourself a Christian. The reason why I'm saying that is not, I'm not saying, you know, get out of here and don't ever want to see you again. What I'm saying is, recognize you are not a Christian so that you can plead with the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Because you only go to a doctor when you realize you are sick. If you don't realize you are sick, you don't go to a doctor. You might be with the doctor in the same church and all you'll be doing is saying, hi doc, hi doc, and, and you go your own way. But it's when you realize that I'm sick that you say, hey doc, can we go into that small corner? I've got this problem and that problem and so on. And that's what I'm saying here. That if you know that your heart is disobeying God, disobeying his clear commandments, don't just say, well, at least I attend funerals, you know, and when I get paid, I give a little bit of money here and there, you know, and so at least I'm doing that. I must be okay. Don't! Go to Jesus Christ and say to him that I do not keep God's commandments. My heart is so selfish and self-centered that I'm still continuing to do what I want despite my knowing that God doesn't want me to do it. Lord, please save me before my heart takes me to hell. Save me. Change me from the inside so that I might be able to experience assurance of salvation that is biblical. That I might be able to say, you have truly saved me. Now, why is it possible that 
a child of hell, a person who is born so inclined towards self-centeredness, selfishness, sin, wickedness, evil, and everything else that God deplores. How is it possible that such a person should begin to live a life that is pleasing to God and, and want to live such a life? completely the opposite of the life that has been there before. Well, that's what John is referring to here. And he he says it is possible because of an inner life of spiritual communion with God. An inner life of spiritual communion with God. This is the way he puts it in our text. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. He abides in God and God abides in him. He's saying, do you see a person who is keeping God's commandment? That's the life you are seeing on the outside. A person who is committed to principled obedience to God. Well, the truth is, on the inside, there is an abiding, a reality of abiding that you don't see from the outside, but it is there. Now, the word abiding is one that John uses a lot. If you go to John 15, where I'll take you in a moment, you will find he uses it there. It simply means to stay, to abide in something, is to stay in something. It is to live in something. It is to wait in something. It is to dwell in something. It is to remain in that place for a long time. That's what it means to abide. Now, those of you who have both sons and daughters in your homes... Will, I can easily use this illustration and you'll, un, you'll understand it. Daughters tend to abide in the bathroom, isn't it? Instead of going to bath, and they seem to be there forever. So it's not surprising that uh, uh, usually a mother will go and knock on the bathroom door. Hey, Iwe, Fuma, it's not surprising. Sons don't abide in the bathroom. You sort of are with them in the corridor. You see them going to the bathroom with a towel over their shoulder. And you just, you just go into the bedroom perhaps to put on a tie. And as you come out, uh, they are also already dressed up. <laughs> I, I thought you, you went to bath. Yes, I've bathed. Ah! Dad, I've bathed. Now, that never happens in my home. Okay? <laughs> but I think you get the point. The, the, the dwelling, the sort of enjoying just, just being in the water and just sort of lying in there. Dwelling, remaining, staying. Can almost make a home there. Even Using WhatsApp while you are inside. <laughs> Whereas for, for sons, 
Just the first quick drops. Bang, switch off. Come on. Out. Life is out there. In the field. Well, that's the picture that John is using here. He's saying, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. He, he dwells in God. He, he lives in God. He's soaking in the life of God. And God is also in communion with him. And what John is talking about here, it's a matter of fact. He's not saying those who keep his commandments will abide in God. No, he is saying they abide in God. In other words, if A is true of you, that you are keeping his commandments, then B is also true of you, that you are abiding in God and God is abiding in you. That's the truth. That's what explains disobedience. And friends, I think from time to time, we need to take a few steps backwards and and just think and gaze and wonder at this reality. Who is this that we are speaking about saying you are abiding in him and he is abiding in you? You are dwelling in him, he is dwelling in you. Who is this? It's the creator of the entire universe. The one who cannot be contained by this vast, vast, vast universe that the most powerful telescope cannot even see anywhere near its end. The one who has made all this is the one who says, I'm going to be in this intimate fellowship with this individual. Now, friends, that blows my mind. It blows my mind that God should abide, should dwell with his child. And that explains the victory over sin. Because it is the almighty God. It is the infinite God who is now dwelling in the soul of a Christian. He is not just visiting, quickly touch and go and is gone, and now he's he's left you to face all the temptations and trials of this world. No, he is in the heart of his child. Can you see why sin should be defeated? Can you see? I mean, look at the world he has made. Look at the power that is in just a nuclear bomb, an atom bomb. Look at the power that is in that. And it's, it's one hundredth or one thousandth millionth billionth of the power of God. And he now comes to dwell in the soul of a Christian. You can see why sin gets defeated. There's a lot of power that is there in you. A lot of power. And this is the way Jesus put it in in first in John chapter 15. I almost said first John. 
in John chapter 15 using the same words of abiding. John 15 and verse 5. John 15 and verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, listen to the inevitable consequence. He it is that bears much fruit. Not simply fruit, not simply some fruit, but much fruit. Why? Well, I'm abiding in him. It is my power, my energy, my divine might that is producing fruit through him. And he ends by saying, without me, you can do nothing. So, do you want to know if you're a Christian today? Don't point me to that day you made some decision. Come on. Point me to the last one week. Have you been obeying God? Have you? Alone. Have you? Has there been that fight where the evil one comes with his temptation and, and your immediate response is no. Come again, no. Come again, no. Devil, which part of no don't you understand? No. I'm resolved to love, obey, and serve my God. Is that you? Because, friends, that's real Christianity. It's not coming into the Christian circles just so that, you know, you can get a job and a fat bank account and, you know, so that God can give you a better job and God can do this and that for you outwardly. You can get all that in the world. But there's one thing you cannot get from the world and it's the power to say no to all ungodliness and worldly passions. The world can't give it to you. But God does when he makes you his child. Well, John, back to First John chapter 3. First <clears throat> John chapter 3. He goes further. He's answering the question, how is this inner life of spiritual communion with God possible? How? And his answer, in many ways, he is uh, simply, as uh, we often say in English, beating a dead horse. In other words, you've already made the point, but you continue. His answer is that it is due to the indwelling of God's spirit. It's the indwelling of God's spirit. And this is the first time that John directly speaks about the spirit in this epistle. It's the first time. He's spoken about him indirectly previously in chapter 2 when he was speaking about the anointing that we receive from God. The anointing we receive from God. But here he begins dealing with the spirit as I have already said. And he says, and by this we know that he abides in us. How do we know? By the spirit whom 
he has given us. And later on, after arguing concerning the spirit and so on, he repeats himself in chapter 4 and verse 13. Chapter 4 and verse 13. He says that, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. The point he's making is this. That this is not guesswork. The spirit of God actually comes to live in us. And he is a personal being. And as he comes to live in us, he causes us to experience fellowship with God. He causes us to experience fellowship with God. He's a very real being, a very real person. He dwells inside us. And as he dwells inside us as believers, he deals with us. He strengthens us. He gives us fresh thoughts, godly thoughts. He fills our hearts with a conviction that I'm going to live for God whatever the cost. I'm willing to be forsaken by others, but I'm going to live for him who has done so much for me. It's the spirit of God working in you. And that's a glorious reality, friends. A glorious reality. And this is something that God has done, not simply in the past, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was given to the church, but whenever a person gets converted, at the point of your conversion, the Spirit of God comes to take residence in your soul. And that's what makes the difference. A Christian is not someone who has just taken on himself some teachings that he must now start following because if he doesn't follow, he might end up being disciplined. A Christian is somebody in whom God dwells by his spirit. The spirit of the living God, the creator of the universe, the governor of history, the coming judge of the living and the dead, the savior of his people, by his spirit comes to dwell in his child. And what a glorious reality that is. Glorious reality. One hymn writer puts it this way, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along life's narrow way. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That's why I know. He dwells within. I know it. He talks with me. He walks with me. Even when all believers are away from me and I'm apparently alone according to the world, I am not alone. His spirit has been given to me. He is with me. 
And that's the reason why a Christian does not live different from the world because the pastor is nearby or the elders are nearby or fellow church members are nearby. They may see what what I'm doing. A Christian lives a godly life because God is in my heart. God is in my heart. That's why a Christian can can leave his cell phone without any password or pin anywhere. That's why he can do that. Because why should I be what they call sexting? Just because I'm alone, nobody's looking, it's dark, and I'm, you know, your lips are something, and your, your thighs are something, alone, and nobody know. The spirit is there. He's in my heart. He inspires me. He, he causes me to feel the filth of this thing. And consequently, I won't do it. It's filth. It's ugly. Is in my heart. It's in my heart. That's the Christian. But when you find that you've got a secret life, and then you've got another public life, and the secret life is dirty, and somehow you are continuing, just no. Look, I'm just not saved. Period. And let me close myself up in my closet and refuse to come out, refuse to eat, plead with Jesus to really, really save me until I know it because his spirit is in my heart and he's leading me in the ways of righteousness. Then I know I'm going to heaven. Then I know I'm going to heaven. Rather than a life that is one thing in one place and another thing in another. So friends, what am I saying? I'm saying use this to check your profession of faith. Use this. That's what John is saying. Test yourself by these things. Is the Holy Spirit, notice Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God resident in me. Then if he's resident in me, I'm having communion with God even when I'm alone. And because God is holy, he is going to be producing holy desires, holy actions out of me. Use it as a test. This is biblical Christianity. And if it were not for this, beloved brethren, I would not be spending my time preaching to you the word of God. I wouldn't be. But it's because I know it. That Christianity is about a transformed life that is otherwise impossible to live. And I've seen it. Individuals after individuals who have done that. Who've done that. I'll hide this young lady's name, but I got a visit just this week from one of our former members who now studies in China. China. She's been gone for a year. And she came to my office and said, I want to thank you. I grew up here. 
I got saved here. I did not really appreciate what God had done for me until I was far away in an atheistic country without the church here, without my parents there. That's when I realized what God has done in me. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that's Christianity. That's Christianity. It's not where pastors and elders and, and other brethren must be like policemen over you all the time. Hey, no, no stop this. Hey, wait. No, 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 no. If that's happening in you, you are not a Christian. God hasn't saved you. You're still in your sins. And if you die that way today, you are going to hell. It doesn't matter. What other things you can say about your Christianity? True Christianity involves this transformation. Call upon the Lord Jesus Christ that he may save you. He is a savior. He is a sufficient savior. He has changed others. Why should he fail to change you? Why? Worse sinners, a thousand times worse than you, have been cleaned up and now live a godly, upright life, full of fruit for God. He can do the same for you. Often people like hiding under the phrase, ah, but I'm only human. You are not. If you are a Christian, you are not only human. You are human inhabited by God. And that makes a world of a difference. Human inhabited by God. The spirit of the living God dwells inside you. The powers of the coming age are in you. You can't tell me, therefore, that I'm only human. You can't. Realize this. Realize this. Because God in Jesus Christ really saves. And I know that's one reason why a lot of people hesitate to become Christians. They say, you know, I can't live a life like that. I can't. I know myself too well. I can't. And I'm saying, yes, you are right. You can't. If it was just left to you, you can't. But Jesus changes hearts. Jesus puts his spirit in us and consequently enables us to live a life which previously we couldn't. Believe me, he is a real savior. As we shall be singing in closing, the comforter has come. So to the question, how can I, a child of hell, in his image, begin to shine? Well, here's the answer. The comforter has come. The Holy Spirit from heaven. He has come. And he's the one who brings about the difference. And oh, I want to close with a further appeal because again and again as pastor of this church, I know 
It won't be long before yet another person professing faith will soon be discovered to be full of worms. And instead of listening to me like this and crying to the Lord, Lord, you've exposed me. I'm not a Christian. Please save me. You instead prefer to continue in hypocrisy, in hidden sin, and someone still show a face like you. You, you can't last. You don't have energy to fight the devil and the world. But if the Lord really saves you, the Spirit of God comes to live inside you. You will want to lift the ceiling of this building as you sing. The comforter has come. He's done it. He's done it. I know. I'm able to live the way I'm living because of the spirit whom he has given me. Amen.